sermon text for today is from Matthew 5, verses 9 through 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, work by your Spirit in our midst and in our souls. Take our fear, our exhaustion, our anxiety, our persistent sense of inadequacy, our emptiness, and fill us up with the certainty of your love, your delight, your kingdom, secured for us in Jesus. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. What kind of world do you think you're living in? When you roll out of bed in the morning and your feet hit the ground, what is your instinctive sense about the world that surrounds you? What sort of posture do you find that you reflexively take in your relationship to the rest of reality? That's a big question. It's a question about imagination. We all hold in our bodies, in our senses, a story of the world. Before we ever consciously think about or reflect upon the world, we feel the world as a certain kind of place. And that embedded story that we take for granted, that assumed vision of reality, shapes our disposition toward everything else. It primes us, so to speak, for action. Our natural tendencies for interpreting and responding to the world around us flow out of how we imagine the world we inhabit. Now, many of us, I think, intuitively envision the world as a place of profound scarcity. Deep in our bones, we sense that ultimately we're alone. No one's looking out for us. We have to scrape and claw to get what we need. Other people are threats. They're competitors for limited resources. And whatever security we can achieve momentarily is fleeting in a wilderness world that is totally out of our control. If you imagine the world that way, you will inhabit the world like a hyena fighting for a bone. You'll exist with an abiding anxiety that your fundamental needs, approval, power, glory, comfort, safety, will go unmet. You'll live on the defensive primed for combat against anyone and anything that encroaches on your mirage of stability. 
You'll be fueled wherever you go by the unshakable fear of losing what truly matters most, and you'll be poised to protect yourself against others at all costs. Most everyone you come across moves through the world that way. Because most everyone you come across imagines the world as a place of scarcity. And in a world of scarcity, that is the only way to survive. But what if the world isn't a desert of scarcity? What if you're actually an heir in a kingdom of abundance? What difference would that make for your emotional life, your relationships, your most basic impulses, your whole posture toward reality? What would that do to the weight that you carry on your shoulders and the burden that bears down upon your mind? Jesus came into the world declaring, the kingdom is at hand. And part of the task of discipleship, of following Jesus in faith, is simply learning to live in the world that truly is. The world of God's loving abundance. The kingdom of glorious plenty. Rather than in the world of scarcity, that we naturally imagine and project. The path of discipleship involves unwinding our old instincts of self-protective fear and learning to live as heirs of the kingdom that Jesus has already welcomed you into by grace. In the Beatitudes, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom for those waiting on God in faith. And at the same time, he identifies for us the qualities that characterize life on the inside of his kingdom people. The Beatitudes are a declaration that God's new work is breaking into the world in Jesus. And they're an invitation to every one of us to step into that blessed work by faith and embody the character that the king both desires in his witnesses and makes possible in his heirs. Now, we've been considering the Beatitudes for a few weeks now, and today we're going to explore the final blessings in three steps. We're going to look at the proclamation, the peacemakers, and the persecution. So first, the proclamation. As you probably know by now, one of the challenges of reading the Bible is truly hearing passages that you've heard a thousand times before. Familiarity, they say, breeds contempt. And it breeds contempt for us over well-known truths. It breeds boredom with well-worn passages. And the Beatitudes are about as familiar as anything in Scripture. But the Bible is always better than you expect. There's always more gold to be mined. And if we can hear Jesus' words afresh 
against the background of Israel's story in the Old Testament, we just might hear something better in these well-worn words than we've ever heard there before. In many ways, Matthew models the early chapters of his gospel after the second half of Isaiah. In the first part of his book, Isaiah announces to God's people that exile is coming because of their persistent, unrepentant idolatry and injustice. God's going to drive them out of his presence. They'll be captured by a foreign nation. The temple where the Lord dwelt will be burned to the ground. The blessing of life with God in his kingdom will give way to the curse of bondage away from his face. It's a tragedy of epic proportion. But beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah prophesies that God's going to free his people from slavery and bring them back into his land, just like he did in the exodus out of Egypt. There's going to be a new exodus. A voice will cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And God will bring his people through the waters, take them out of their wilderness, and settle them at home in the presence of his glory again. Isaiah sees a servant in whom God delights. A servant upon whom Yahweh sets his spirit. And this servant, he says, will cleanse his people of their sin and lead them like Moses back into life with God. And then in chapter 61, Isaiah hears the servant sing a song. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news, gospel to the poor, announcing that the victorious king has come to rebuild at last his broken kingdom. The servant says, God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. Comfort them with the message. The exile is over. Just like Adam, the first son of God, was a priest in the Garden of Eden, the servant says that his people will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. You shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Because the servant's going to restore them to God's presence. So that they are not only priests and ministers. But they are the garden of his glory. The planting of the Lord. The servant declares that his people will trade their shame and their dishonor for rejoicing and everlasting joy. And they'll receive a double portion from God in the land. What's a double portion? That's the kind of inheritance reserved for the firstborn son. The servant sings that the Lord loves justice and righteousness, and he is going to bring that justice and righteousness for his people. And when the servant comes to restore Israel into life with God, he will make his people, he says, a garden of righteousness and praise. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 
Isaiah prophesied about Israel's new exodus and their re-entry into the presence of God the King. And Matthew tells his story to show you that Jesus is God's answer to every single one of Isaiah's hopes. Did you hear it? John the Baptist cries out as a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the arrival of the exodus liberating God. And he even quotes Isaiah 40 in the desert. Jesus goes through water in his baptism as a picture of the exodus that he's going to accomplish. And the Father sets his spirit upon him. The Father bellows out from heaven that this is the Son in whom his soul delights. He's marking him out with Isaiah's vocabulary as the long-awaited servant of the Lord. And then Jesus goes up on a mountain and he issues blessings plucked straight out of Isaiah 61. Good news of heaven's kingdom for the poor. Comfort for those mourning in the plight of their exile. A land inheritance for the people depending on God. Justice for those hungry and waiting. Reason for rejoicing in the midst of shame and dishonor. They'll see God brought face to face with the glory of the Lord. And they'll be sons of God. Priests like Adam in God's presence. Growing up in praise and righteousness even in the face of persecution. Like the very Garden of Eden. Any Israelite who heard those words that day would know they can only mean one thing. There's only one message lurking behind words like that the servant of the Lord that Isaiah promised is standing in front of me on the mountain. The restoration of life in the presence of God, the long-awaited walk back into Eden's glory has finally arrived in Jesus. The exile in the wilderness is over. The kingdom of divine abundance is here, and those who have trusted and followed after Yahweh in the darkness are about to be caught up in a whole new world of indestructible blessing. Before the Beatitudes are ever a call into the character of discipleship, they are a proclamation that a new world has dawned. And what Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of his ministry is exactly what he accomplished at the end. On top of another mountain, Jesus went to the cross to cleanse you of sin. He rose up from the grave to bring you on an exodus out of your death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father as the reigning triumphant king over all things. And he poured out his spirit to anoint you as priests, holy, pure, fit to live and serve in the presence of God. He poured out his spirit to fill you up with glory. 
as the garden where his spirit abides. Truly, you are the planting of the Lord. If you belong to Jesus by faith, the vision of Isaiah 61 is not merely your future hope. It is the reality in which you live at this very moment. Everything the prophets reached for is your possession here and now. The abundant kingdom broke into history in Jesus Christ. And if you are his, you have been swept up as a citizen and heir into the fullness, security, blessing, glory, love, and life of his kingdom. That is the true world that you inhabit. Which means you don't have to live like you're in the desert of scarcity any longer. Jesus plants you in a new kingdom, a new reality. And that work of sovereign grace now makes possible a fundamentally new way of being as you follow after your king. That's the proclamation. Second, the peacemakers. Amid that proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Standing on a mountaintop and addressing a crowd of Israelite exiles, Jesus teaches them that the sons of God are characterized by the pursuit of peace. And that the peacemakers will one day and for all eternity be publicly recognized by God as his sons and fully granted all the privileges of the gracious status that they already possess. In the Bible, peace, shalom, is a remarkably dense concept. It refers to the all-encompassing condition of wholeness, flourishing, joy, relational integrity, life, the way it's supposed to be in the presence of God. Adam was a son of God who enjoyed God's Shalom in Eden, and he was called to be an agent of shalom in the world, extending the wholeness of God's reign, the wholeness of his kingdom throughout the earth. Israel was a son of God who dwelt in the shalom of God's presence, and they were called to trust the Lord in faith, worship his name, obey his commands, live in love, and do justice as a community of peace, to cultivate Shalom, the deep flourishing of the kingdom as all of life worked together as intended. From the beginning, the sons of God have been those who lived in peace with God and who were then called to pursue peace out in the world, to seek the good of others, to contribute to the thriving of every image bearer and all creation. Peacemaking is a mark of faith in and covenant fidelity to God. It's an evidence of one's sonship. 
So Jesus assures the peacemaking sons of God who are so often invisible to the world, who so often feel that their labors for peace are being squandered. He assures them, God knows you. God will vindicate you for every eye to see. God will grant you to serve as sons in his house, priests for his presence forever and ever. But this word of blessing upon the peacemakers is for us also a summons to follow Jesus as peacemakers. The pursuit of shalom is, according to our king, a defining characteristic of disciples who belong to his kingdom. Jesus calls those that he has made by grace into sons to live as followers who rest in the peace of God, who bear witness to that peace wherever they go, who are skilled at cultivating peace in relationships, people who diffuse conflicts and de-escalate tensions rather than fanning them into flame, who are quick to genuinely apologize when they're wrong and quicker to forgive when they're wronged, who resist the temptation to get reactively defensive in the face of accusation or insinuation, who reject the allure of retaliation in favor of the hard joy of reconciliation. People who are curious about others' experiences and needs and are ready to sacrifice in order to seek their welfare and who, with wisdom and grace, can share the good news of peace that Jesus offers in his gospel. Those are the comprehensive shalom makers. Those are the kinds of beautiful people that not only enjoy peace with God, but live as beacons of contagious peace in the midst of a sinful, conflicted, devouring world. But how? That is a tall order. How can I possibly become that kind of person? Jesus says that the peacemakers will be acknowledged as the sons of God that they really are. But we can also turn that around. Because internalizing the sonship that you've received by grace will make you into a peacemaker. An agent of God's peace in the world. Now, what do I mean? If you don't know who you really are and have to constantly seek to prove yourself anew, if you're unconvinced that you're truly taken care of and have to scrap to get every ounce of what you believe is rightfully yours, if deep down you see yourself as an isolated pilgrim in a world of scarcity, you'll never be able to embody peace with other people. Your fundamental fear and animating anxiety will fold you in on yourself so that you're not curious about or prepared to compassionately understand the complex internal life of others. You'll enter into situations primed for self-protection 
in a way that causes others to instinctively raise their own defenses to guard against you. You'll be poised to interpret other people's actions and words through the lens of your deepest fears. And when they do the slightest thing to confirm your sneaking suspicion that they're really against you, you'll strike back. Or you'll go passive-aggressive. Or you'll cut them off entirely. There are a thousand ways you might deal with it. But the one thing you won't be able to do is help to create and sustain true peace in the chaos. But if you know that you're a son of God, a child who lives each day in the presence of God's face, in the enveloping light of his glory, under the eternal smile of his approving delight. If you know that Jesus the Son made peace with God to make you an heir in his kingdom of abundance, that, that fundamental fear can finally fall away. The animating anxiety can evaporate in the warmth of the Father's undying love. You don't have to go into every moment as a parasite. Hear this. Christian, you don't have to go into every moment as a parasite laboring to draw life from other people to fill yourself up. You're already full. You're already whole. You're totally safe. You are completely secure. Every need that you have has been met for you in Jesus and will continue to be met by Jesus forever and ever into the long stretches of eternity. And when you enter into relationships like that, with an abiding sense of your secure sonship in the abundant kingdom, an abiding sense of your invincible shalom with God. You'll have the power to bring peace with you. Your very presence, your demeanor, when you walk into a room, will disarm others. Put them at ease. Elicit their own vulnerability, perhaps. Why? Because they'll be able to sense that you're not coming to take like every other person. You're not living in competition with them. Things that used to offend you and set you off will hit like pebbles against armor. Because other people no longer have the power to threaten what's most dear to you. You'll patiently seek to understand where others are coming from. And the fears that perhaps are animating them, rather than reacting in knee-jerk defensiveness, because you don't have anything to prove anymore. When you're confronted about a flaw or an error or a sin, you'll repent with no strings attached. Why? Because you know that your status in the eyes of God was never in jeopardy in the first place. And when other people begin to grow curious about how you can live with such casual fearlessness, 
You'll be able to share the good news of the peacemaking Christ without tying yourself in knots over what they might start to think about you. In some sense, becoming a peacemaker is the natural outworking of inhabiting all the other Beatitudes by faith. The poor in spirit have no reputation to protect, so they aren't worried about manipulating people's ideas or competing against them in pride. The mourners can be honest about themselves and about the world and give other people room to feel and express their own difficult feelings in the presence of a truly safe person. The meek live and speak with gentleness rather than stirring up conflict with their harshness and protective sarcasm. Those hungry for justice want to see other people get the care they need and deserve instead of selfishly living at everyone else's expense. The merciful break the cycle of retaliation with forgiveness because they don't need to make someone else bleed in order to feel whole again. Jesus gives you the abundant kingdom. He pulls you out of your perceived scarcity and plants you in an utterly new world. And as we learn to embrace the inexhaustible blessings that he keeps on pouring out upon us, we can become people of peace, peacemakers. Pursuers of shalom, whose lives bear witness to the peculiar beauty of God's abundant kingdom. But third, the persecution. Jesus concludes the Beatitudes with a double blessing on those who are persecuted. Here's what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it may seem strange to us that Jesus would transition from talking about peacemakers to talking about persecution receivers. That he'd suggest that disciples who spread shalom ought to expect deep conflict in return. But it's not as strange as it might sound at first. Because remember, Jesus' kingdom turns the ways of the world upside down. And whenever that happens, whenever the contrast between two kingdoms is made visible. The kingdom that's still living in the world of scarcity lashes out in self-protection. Now, how does that play out? Consider, if you live with an abiding peace, strangely enough, people will at times feel threatened by that. Have you experienced that before? They want you to get militantly angry about the things that make them militantly angry because they want you to love and validate the things that they love. And if you don't match them in their level of idolatrous 
animosity, your peace will begin to expose and interrogate the things that they've devoted all of their life and emotional energy to. Your peaceableness will be a declaration that the idol hiding at the root of their anger isn't really worth living for. And sometimes that act of truthful witness means that their anger is going to get turned on you. Because you, your life, your heart, has become the threat that now has to be neutralized. In conflict, if you respond to mockery or passive-aggressive behavior with gentle curiosity that seeks to honestly understand, that has the courage to name the unhealthy dynamic that's creating tension in the relationship. Your peace, your fullness, your refusal to play the game of relational combat will function like a magnifying glass that reveals the truth about what's really going on, that reveals the truth about the other person's dysfunction and slavery to their desires. And sometimes that might only elevate the anger directed at you. The righteousness that's embodied in all the other Beatitudes will have this revealing effect as well. Think with me. Your poverty of spirit, your humility, your freedom from the compulsion to constantly posture for others will expose the emptiness of the competitive pride that runs the world. Your meek gentleness will expose the unhealthy idolatries that control people and fuel their harsh overreactions. Your hunger for righteousness, for the justice of God, will expose the world's willingness to sacrifice silent victims, take advantage of the powerless, and turn a blind eye to the injustices that maintain the status quo and benefit the mighty. Your hope in Jesus, your willingness to follow in his way, your delight in the treasures of his kingdom will expose the utter triviality of every other supposedly ultimate thing that people spend their entire lives pursuing. Your life as a beautiful witness to the kingdom is always an invitation to the world to taste and see that Jesus is good. But it is always at the very same time a prophetic revelation of the emptiness of life outside of him. So Jesus prepares you for the suffering, the insults, the reviling, the persecution that living as his disciple will inevitably elicit. How? He tells you the kingdom of heaven is yours. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He reminds you yet again, Christian, you don't live in the wilderness of scarcity where other people have any power to truly threaten you. Do you hear that? You're an heir in the kingdom 
of eternal abundance now and forever. And no persecution, no disapproval, no scorn can touch or diminish the love, status, glory, and security that is yours as a son planted in the presence of God. In Jesus' kingdom, courage and joy in the face of the world's anger is nothing more than the reasonable response of a disciple who truly understands reality, who truly grasps what they've already been given and what can never be taken away from them. For millennia, Christians have gone singing to the gallows. They've been thrown to the lions with prayers on their lips. They've been tied to the fiery stake, worshiping Jesus with their final breath. Why? Because you can't kill someone who's already dead. You cannot kill someone who has already died and been raised to impenetrable life with Jesus. You can't impoverish someone who's inherited a kingdom that human hands can't grab. You can't strip someone who's clothed in the glory of God. You can't steal from someone whose treasure is hidden, kept for them in the heavens. You can't snuff out someone who's filled up with the holy fire of the very Spirit of God Himself. You can't do it. That is not a denial of the pain of persecution. It is the simple recognition that no man of earth or demon of hell has the power to compromise your life in God. They can't do it. Even when the world makes the mistake of believing that they can threaten to take everything from you, they can truly take nothing. They can't take anything. If Jesus really is the king he claimed to be, if he really has welcomed you into the kingdom of glory that Isaiah saw and reached for, then you are secure. You are secure in God's abundant kingdom and rooted in that unshakable security. You can live from fullness without fear. In peace and in praise. Even amid persecution. And this right here is the feast of the kingdom. In a world where appearances still suggest that power and pride and sin and idolatry and might and aggression will win the day. This table points you to a new world. This table points you to what is really real. You want to know what the world is really like? Don't look out there. Look right here. Those with empty hands that reach for Jesus here at this table are filled by God himself. Honored at his banquet table as treasured guests of the king. Crowned with honor and glory. Welcomed to dwell in his presence now and forever. If you feel empty. If you feel like you're wandering alone in a world of scarcity. Let this table now Retrain your senses and envelop you one more time in the kingdom of loving abundance that is your true home now and forevermore. Let's pray.
Father, we're like people who, having looked in the mirror, go away for a second and forget our faces. We hear Jesus telling us that we're blessed. And our most natural instinct is to still fear that we're under the curse. Retrain our senses. Reshape our imaginations. Help us to envision the world and our place within it in the terms of your kingdom. Help us to feel in our bones the security of being the garden of the Lord, the heirs and sons, ministers before your face, servants wrapped up in your glory, priests of our God and King. Help us to truly start to believe down in our gut that you really have loved us in all the ways that you said you did. And help us to live as people of peace, people of praise, people of courage in the face of mockery. Because we know who we are. We know who we are in you and because of you. In Christ's name, amen.